Well, uh, today uh, we, we focused on the power uh, of praying first. That's what we looked at last week. And uh, I, I presented you with the idea of starting your, your day with the first 15 minutes being devoted to connection with God. Five minutes in the Word. Five minutes in worship. Five minutes in prayer. The time goes very quickly if you, if you really seek to connect with God in these ways at the start of your day. I would guess the first moments of my day go faster than any other moments of the day somehow. But uh, I also encouraged you last week to, to put God first, in, not only in your day, putting God first every week by, by coming to church and, and worshiping with uh, the body of Christ. Put, put God first in your income by giving to Him out of the first of the money that you receive. And so, uh, I was encouraging you to put God first because what goes first impacts the rest. Uh, you know, in this series, we've got this book, Pray First. It's available still in, in our lobby at, at River City Church. And so, this is available. It's, it's available for a minimum donation of $10. This book's cost more than that. But we want to put it in your hands. There's great, great information in this book. Uh, I'm, I'm reading it again uh, just, just in this last couple weeks. There's so much that's helpful and practical here. And one of the things that I love about this book is that he presents different models for how to pray. And today we're looking at Jesus' prayer model. And that is known as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the, this, this passage of Scripture we're going to look at comes out of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. It's found in Matthew 6, 5, 6, and 7. And uh, Jesus, Jesus gives us instruction about how to pray, and He gives us instruction about what to pray. And so we're going to be looking at that uh, here in just a moment. I remember one of, the, one of the really cool experiences that I had here as the pastor is a number of years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to conduct a, a funeral for a young Haitian woman who died in our community. And uh, I, was, I was invited to, to lead that, that service and and uh, many of you know that my wife and I, we also speak French. And so we got there to the graveside and, and we were performing the committal service. And I started to pray the Lord's Prayer in French. Notre Père Celeste. That's how it begins. And the moment that I said that, this, this entire crowd, maybe 150, 200 Haitians, finished the prayer for me all together at once. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. But these are more than words. Jesus gives us a perspective here about prayer. Jesus gives us, if I could say it this way, the bones of prayer. And so let's check it out. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. That's Jesus' word for religious people. In particular, Jesus calls the religious leaders of his day hypocrites. And so, uh, he's, he's, he's not talking about people who are praying who maybe don't know anything about prayer. These are people who probably know a lot about prayer. But you can know a great deal about prayer, but pray with the wrong spirit. And that's what Jesus is saying is wrong about 
the hypocrite's prayer. He says, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your heavenly Father, or pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Now he's talking about pagans. Now he's talking about people who, who are just exercising religion on some level. The, the reason why they pray with so many words, he says, they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want you to notice in the first part of this passage, Jesus addresses ways that both religious people who, who, who know God, they know about Him, and those, and those that don't know God, the pagans, He tells us not to pray like either of them. The religious hypocrites, He says don't pray like them because they are looking to be noticed by others. They're, they're cozying up to God, so to speak, so that other people will think better of them. And you know, this doesn't just happen in first century Judaism. This happens in all kinds of religions where there are, where there are signs that you are pious. And so we talk in our, in our culture a lot about virtue signaling. There's all kinds of virtue signaling that happens within religions in the world. I think of a number of years ago when I visited Egypt. And I was, I, I was noticing there in Cairo uh, on the foreheads of men of all walks of life, I mean, from, from very wealthy people to very poor people, I was noticing many of the men had a bruise on their forehead. And our hosts explained to us that the reason why they had the bruise on their forehead is because they were banging their head against the stone when they would kneel to pray. And bow down to pray each day. It was a way to tell others, I'm a person who prays. I'm a person who takes on pain because I pray. Jesus says, don't do that. In fact, your father is just interested in meeting with you in secret. He doesn't even need for you to explain to others that you're meeting with him. And that kind of relationship just for the sake of relating to him no social fringe benefits come with this. That will lead to reward from God, Jesus says. You know, uh, Jesus' point here, because he, he also speaks of uh, these pagans, he, he says, he says don't, don't pray like them because they use many words. They think in their many words they'll be heard. And that, that phrase, many words, it doesn't come across in, in the English translation, but this phrase, many words, it, it's referring to anxious words. They are, they are nervous in approaching God. They're, they're very like, uh, uh, they, they, they figure they've got to talk God into answering their prayer. 
Because God is holding out on them. He's, he's holding back from them. He's, he's begrudgingly withholding an answer to prayer. Jesus, he's, he's telling us something about prayer and about how we approach prayer in these words about how we shouldn't pray. And this is basically it. The essential ingredient of prayer is not doing something for others or for God, but being with Him. Being with God. That is the nature of prayer. That's the basic idea behind prayer, that I am with God. You know, when, when you think about how he says, he says, you know, they, these people, they, they pray in such a way so that other people will hear them, basically, and think better of them. I think about, you know, what if, what if your father was, or, or your friend, was a billionaire, or a very famous person, or maybe, maybe like you were related to, I don't know, you're related to the king of England, and yet, the only time that you bring up that relationship is when it benefits you. You want to be seen with them because it's going to get you favor or power with some other group of people. That would be a disgusting relationship for you to have with your friend or father. You'd be using them. In essence, Jesus is saying, that's going to poison prayer. If that's how you approach God, for what you can get out of it, that's going to poison it. He tells them, you know, don't, don't, don't heap up many words to God trying to, trying to convince Him. Instead, relate to Him in a different way. Relate to Him as your Father. Now, Jesus, of course, He, he, begins, he begins His prayer, our Father, but really, this is... Uh, this is an essential and unique element of Jesus' teaching that we see throughout the Gospels is that he envisions God as our Father. In fact, if you speak to people, for example, who are Muslim, many of them will say, you shouldn't call God your Father. It's just too close, it's too intimate. And Jesus would tell us exactly, exactly. We are meant to approach God considering him as our father. In fact, in the New Testament, this is spelled out in many different ways, but one of the, one of the ideas that we're given over and over and over about our relationship with God and about the nature of salvation is that we are adopted by God through Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're adopted by him. This is how Romans 8 says, it says, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Amen. In the ancient world, in the first century uh, Greco-Roman Empire, they, they had this concept, uh, of course, about, uh, about who you could pass what you owned onto. And the only person that you could pass your stuff onto, your, your estate onto, would be... The, 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 the firstborn son or the son that you had designated should receive your estate. And so if, if a man had no male heirs, no sons, he would find someone that he thought he could trust to take care of his family after he was gone. And he would adopt them. He would make them the son who, who would be the heir. And that's exactly the picture 
that we're meant to bring into mind when he says this, that we've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Because once you were adopted in the, in the Roman court system by someone, that adoption could never be reversed or broken. That, that, that adoption, it, it, nothing, nothing could change that. And so immediately what would happen is that that person who was adopted had the same rights and privileges, privileges of every biological heir, heir of the family. I want you to think about that. Too many of us, we think about ourselves only as God's servants. We think of ourselves only as soldiers in God's army. But, but we are His children. Many of us, we, we think of ourselves as people who work for God. But I want you to think about how differently the business relationship is from a family relationship. For one, in, in business, relationships are based on doing. It's what you do in the company. It's what you do for the boss that defines your 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 relationship to the enterprise. But in a family, it doesn't have anything to do with being, with do, it doesn't have anything to do with what you do that makes you a part of that family. It's simply a matter of who you are. I'm the dad. That's the son. That's my wife. That's my cousin. Nothing will change it. Nothing is going to make that differently than it is. Doing and being. Another difference between business and family is that in, a, in business, there's this exchange, right? I do certain things, and then I'm given compensation and benefits for what I do for you. But in a family, what the family has is common property to those that belong to the family. So, so you know, in, in my family, uh, there's this, there's this uh, cabinet, the, the pantry right there in our kitchen. And uh, sometimes there's common property of cookies there in that, in that cabinet. And, you know, sometimes I've discovered my only common property left at times is an empty box. Anybody have that, have that experience? Or the empty chip bag. You know, I love Doritos. It's one of my guilty pleasures. And I've discovered sometimes that the, ba the bag is empty, but I, I can't get too upset because it's understood that the food in our house is kind of common property. Sometimes even if your name has been written on it, could, could be. You know, something else, a difference between business and family is that in a business, the relationship is absolutely conditional. It's predicated on what you do, what your performance is like. It's predicated on your title or like the contract that was signed with you when you came in. But in a family, the place of belonging, the relationship, the love, that, that's unconditional. That's not based on my performance in the family. I continue to belong to the family basically no matter what. Another, another consideration here would be the difference between a business relationship and a family relationship is that in a business, performance leads to acceptance. You make the deal, you, you sell so many units, 
You, you make so many units within an hour on the line, whatever it is you do, that performance leads to acceptance, it leads to promotion within the company or the organization. But within a family, it's different. Within a family, it's acceptance that's meant to lead to performance. In other words, I, I, don't, I don't work so I can be accepted to my, by my family. I, I work to do hard and honor my parents and, and bring honor to my family because I belong to them already. Because I fit there already. So many of us, we, we relate to God performing all the time, hoping we'll get His acceptance. When actually it's meant to work the other way. It's meant to be that, that I would recognize that because of my acceptance by God, because of Jesus' sacrifice for me, that kind of acceptance, that kind of grace that I've received, well, that's what leads to my sacrificial performance for Him. I want you to think about this, you know. Your boss in a business owes you the boss owes you. And if the boss doesn't pay you what you've, you've been told you'd be paid, well, you have every right to be upset. Why, don't, why, why didn't I get paid the rate that I was supposed to be paid? In a family, on, on the other hand, what you receive, what you might ask your parents for, whatever, in, in a functional family, this has the context of warmth and confidence. I, as the son, could, could go to my parents and I could, I could ask them anything because I'm their son and they love me and they want to see me succeed. That is the basis for a family relationship. And I'm saying to you today, we need to get clear when we approach God. We're approaching Him as our Father. We're approaching Him with, with the understanding that He has a positive regard for us. He wants what's best for us. He loves us profoundly. You know, for too many of us, we have this kind of transactional exchange relationship with God so that, so that we, we say to ourselves, you know, God, I, I've, been, I've been trying really hard here. I've been really good. God, I, I've been giving to you in, in, in these ways with my time, with my money, with my prayers, with my energy. I, I've really worked hard for you. And then when things don't go right for us, or we find ourselves in pain or in trouble or sick, sometimes we throw it back in God's face and we say, Lord, how can this be happening to me? I, I, I thought that you saw how hard I was working for you. Why, why didn't you answer my prayer? You, you know that I've been trying my best to do what's right. And it's because that's not the way that relationship with God works. That's absolutely backwards to what Jesus is teaching us about God. God, God's our Father. We don't, we don't earn it from Him. We don't expect for Him to have to perform for us because we perform for Him. Think about this, you know. The basis of a Christian's relationship with God is family and not merely as the servant of the king. 
You know, Jesus doesn't start his great prayer by saying, our king who art in heaven. He doesn't start his prayer by saying, our, our master who art in heaven. But it's our father. It's meant to be on purpose. It's meant to put us in the context of understanding we have a wise, loving, absolutely emotionally healthy father in God. And that, that, that colors how we see everything else. It, this is repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament. I'll just show you a few. Here in John 1.12, we see, But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The children of God. You know, uh, there's not much that can wake me up at like 2 or 3 in the morning. But I found that when my children would come to me and they were thirsty or they were hungry or they were sick, that's something that could make me spring up right out of bed. I wanted to answer whatever need they had. That's the kind of relationship that we have with our Father. In John 17, Jesus is praying for us. And he says that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's the idea in the New Testament. That God loves us, has the same regard for us if we are in Christ that he has for Jesus himself. That's the idea of, uh, uh, of, of how God has come to accept us on the same terms that he's accepted his own son. God loves us like he loves his own son. That's why Hebrews 4 puts it to us like this about prayer. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. It's because we understand that we belong to the Father as his children. And so next, Jesus gives us the bones of prayer. It's a prayer that he must have repeated more than once. We find it more than once in the Gospels. And the first thing he says, basically, is he, he starts his prayer with worship. Hallowed be your name. Something to understand is that prayer involves becoming caught up in the wonder and beauty of God. Prayer involves being caught up in the wonder and beauty of God. What do I mean by this? I mean that when we come to pray... And we, and we say, our Father, it is supposed to lead to some reflection on our part about the fact that we are calling God Father. He has, he has incredible uh, power to work on our behalf. And it should astound us again and again and again that God loves us in the way that we do. That's what leads to worship. Not merely the greatness and power of God, but His tenderness toward us, His love for us, His consideration of us. Why would He consider us? The earth is His footstool, the Bible says. That should lead to worship. That's how Jesus starts praying. And, and this is where worship, this is where prayer starts, this is where worship starts. Jesus said that in order to get into God's kingdom, you needed to become like a little child. You wouldn't get there if you didn't become like a little child. What does a little child think about their father? They think their father can do anything. They think their father is Superman. That's how we're 
expected. That's how we're meant to approach God. That's the basis of prayer. That's where prayer begins. Then Jesus moves on to request and trust. Very often we move straight into requesting. Giving God a list of everything that we need for Him to do. Jesus has first shown us that prayer begins with worship of Him as our Father. And then He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, when, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, He's talking about the redemptive rule of God. The kingdom is Jesus' main message. It's what He came preaching. He came saying, The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. It's his central message. And and the kingdom of God is when God's rule comes into the world. And it redefines relationships. Sinners are forgiven. Sick people are healed. The lame are made to walk. The blind are made to see. It, it, It reverses the power of death. People that are separated and estranged from one another are reconciled. That's the kingdom of God. It's, it's miraculous kind of power. And, and our prayers are meant to be requests about miraculous things. But this is balanced by Jesus' statement that we should pray when he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'd say it like this. God as our Father means we ask shamelessly for God's grace. So we ask for God to heal. We ask for God to provide. We ask for God to forgive us when we mess up. But we also accept His decisions. So many people I know have given up on God because God didn't answer their prayers in the way they expected. They prayed prayed for their spouse or their parent who was sick and they died. And so they gave up on God. Or they prayed for the right open door at work and they found that they lost their job and they they lost their home and whatever else. And so they gave up on God because God didn't answer their prayer the way they expected. Jesus is helping us understand by praying, your kingdom come, your will be done, that, that not only do we believe that God has the power to do it and to change whatever it is we're asking Him to change and do, But we're also coming at that from a context of understanding that we're going to cling to the idea that what God wants is better than what I want. What God wants, that's that's ultimately what I'm going to trust. And that is not always an easy way to live. But it's the discipline of every person who prays like Jesus taught us to pray. Then Jesus tells us to pray for the everyday. Give us our daily bread. That's just a reminder that there's no request that's too small for your father's concern. Those of you who've been parents, you would would want to know if your child had run out of underwear. Sometimes you're not told. Or you'd want to know if your child didn't have clean socks. You'd, You'd want to know if your child had fallen down and scraped themselves and just needed somebody to wash that out and Put a band-aid on it. Your father, he relates to you in these ways as well. He holds all things together. He holds your life together. I love how Colossians 1 says it. 
I'm sorry, I went on to the next slide, I didn't mean to. Colossians 1, it's not in your notes, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, talking about Jesus, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know what that means? Jesus holds your life together. If you believe he's that big, it means that you believe that he'll hold your life together. Even when it all feels like it's falling apart. Jesus teaches us to pray in a way that understands that the Father is concerned for us. Next, Jesus prays for eternally significant things. Not just about everyday things. He prays, forgive us our debts. And he says, as, as we forgive those who are indebted to us. So, so what's going on there? Well, I, I think it's that reflecting on our blessings, like our blessings from God, like forgiveness, must impact our consideration of others. Too many of us, we just enter prayer thinking about what it means for us. We become self-centered in our spirituality because we just think about how God would enrich us or prosper us or heal us or whatever it is. And we miss out on the fact that God, God has blessed us so that we might be a blessing to others. And in the case of forgiveness, if we are accepting the grace of God that's come through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, if we're accepting that we're called the children of God and He's our Father because Jesus laid down His life for our sins, then it means there's nothing that anyone else can ever do to us that we can deny forgiveness for. Jesus says this right after He says the Lord's Prayer. Verses 14 and 15, He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Reflection on what God has done for us. Reflection on who we are in God's sight. Absolutely must impact how we see others. And in this case, give us the grace to forgive others when they've sinned against us. Finally, Jesus ends his prayer by talking about protection from temptation and from Satan. Jesus, when he says, he says, deliver us from evil, he actually says, deliver us from the evil one. And this is, this is instructive for us because we need to recognize, we, we must have God's help to overcome sin and Satan in our lives. Again, that the liberating power of God doesn't visit us because we try hard enough or because we, 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 we worked hard enough to, to earn like, like freedom or we, we worked hard enough to, to just earn blessings so that we wouldn't, we wouldn't experience the power of the enemy. That, that's not it. Our Father wants to destroy the works of Satan in our lives and He wants us to call on Him to, do, to, to help us to see that come to pass. You know, that's why he sent Jesus. 1 John 3, 8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. Now, the works of the devil, they're, 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 they're wide and broad. 
Sometimes the words of the devil come through other people's mouths or the way that they treat you. Sometimes the works of the devil come through, come through illness. Sometimes the works of the devil come through, come through uh, temptation that cause you to make decisions that, that wreck precious relationships or, or wreck your health. Maybe, maybe sometimes the works of the devil have to do with things that, that end up becoming a, a, a trap for you. That end up tearing apart your life. Jesus instructs us here to pray for freedom because he has the power to answer. Friends, that's good news. That's a reason for us to turn to God here at the beginning of this new year. Turn to him first. And to keep turning to him every day. With this, not only this perspective of prayer as God is our Father, but also to follow this path that Jesus has given us.